I love, I do get to interact with Jairus quite a bit every single week, and he is always telling stories about you guys and about what God is doing in you and through you in the context of this church and community. And you got to understand, as a movement of churches, we believe that we are just a bunch of ordinary people, right? That God is going to change our lives, and that's, just, that's not the end of it. We're not just going to sit here and wait until Jesus comes back or until we go to heaven, but we are called to go out into our communities to love and to redeem. And so you need to know that Kevin and Jairus and Caleb and all of your staff and people come back and they are telling amazing stories about who you are. And it is challenging and provoking to all of us on all of our campuses. So thank you. I am privileged to be here with you guys today. Um, as you know, we're in a series, right, um, on a life of adventure living with an unpredictable God, a God who sometimes is hidden and feels incredibly distant. Uh, but as we're learning, that's just not true. And so I'm excited for you this morning. If you've been coming to Mariner's Church for a long time or if it's your first time here, I believe that God is going to speak to you. And I believe he's going to continue to invite you to take your next step towards him, even with him in this life of adventure. Today we're going to be talking about courage. What does it look like to move through life with a sense of courage? For me, I'm a father of three kids, two boys and a girl. Uh, ages, I better get this right. They're not here, but my, I know you'll tell my wife and it'll be painful. Uh, nine and a half, uh, almost eight, and six and a half. And we know as parents, or we know as kids growing up of parents, that there is this responsibility that parents feel to help kids become who they're called to become. And as dads, we, I think, particularly revel in the opportunity to invite our kids, particularly our sons, into this life of adventure. So I remember when my kids were even younger growing up, I'm always pushing them up rock walls, and people at parks are going, are they going to be okay? And I'm like, ah, they're great. They're going to be fine. I remember taking training wheels off probably three weeks too early just so they would have to find their way. I remember skateboards and pads and everything and all this stuff. So my boys just started playing baseball last year, and they're finding their way in it. But this year, my son, uh, my oldest son, is playing kid pitch for the first time. And if you know anything about baseball and kids and the first year of kid pitch, it can be a little dangerous, a little scary, right? Because kids quite don't know what a strike zone is yet, and they're finding their way in that. And so my son's doing really great the first couple games of the season. And then after that, he sees a couple of his teammates get hit by an onslaught of baseballs. And they're crying, and a couple of them are melting down and limping their way to first base, and he starts getting afraid. And so prior to this, he'd been doing amazing, hitting the ball, but all of a sudden I start watching him at the plate, and he starts backing up. You know, and when he swings, it's kind of this now. You know, he's just, I don't know. And so I'm like, son, what are you doing? I'm like, you got to get in there. He's like, but yeah, Dad, I could get hit. And I said, you're not going to get hit? But dad, two of my teammates already got hit. I'm like, well, you're not going to get hurt if you get hit. Dad, they're crying. <laughs> did you not see what happened to these kids? And so I did what any responsible parent would, did, would do. I, and I said, son, I will pay you if you get hit. <laughs> if you want to play baseball, you have to keep your head in there. You have to stand in there and you have to stare that ball down and you have to look at that pitcher and you have to say, throw it because I'm going to hit it. So the next game, he's up there, and he's got his head in there, and he's ready. And he keeps his head in, and sure enough, he just gets tagged right in the side. And here's what he does. He starts walking off, and he throws the bat down, and he looks at us, and he smiles and just. 
<laughs> Pay me. Pay me. But what he really wants in baseball is he wants this story of adventure to unfold without any sense of danger. What he really wants is to become all of who he's called to be and gifted to be as an athlete without ever having the fear or danger of getting hurt by a baseball or even the uncertainty that it might happen. He wants the assurance of complete safety and security. And we have that same desire in following Jesus, don't we? When we say yes, what we want is we see this incredibly powerful God giving us the gift of his son and his Holy Spirit. And he's, we're like, this is fantastic. He's got to smooth these roads out. I bet the curves are going to get straighter. And I bet he's just going to smooth everything out. And we want the story to unfold without any threat of discomfort or fear. That's what we want in life. And in the moment we're seeing things start to get a little complicated and this life of adventure, of faith, actually requires faith, then we start to wonder, what does this look like? And what we're all super afraid of is the people we see in life that courageously just keep their heads in. And we're like, wow, that's amazing. Look what they do. They hit home runs. They get to run the bases. They get to take on life in ways that we don't. And we start to think that those crazy people, there might be something to that. What would God want to do with me? What if I really let God lead me like that? And we start to let our fear in life shade us and masquerade as safety and security. And we start to back out a little bit. And we start to say, I don't know. We start to think maybe the uncertainty can overwhelm us. And we live lives that are smaller than what God actually intended us to live. He wrote every single one of our stories as a grand, epic tale of adventure. And we reduce it down to a little kid's book because we let safety and security hold us back. We want to believe that if God is good, I won't get hurt. I won't get wounded. We want to tie those things together. And if we read the Bible, we know that God's incredibly consistent. And it's sometimes even confusing because we read all these passages, especially through the Psalms are beautiful, right? And you go through there and guys like David, the man who knew God's heart better than anyone, right? Is writing things about God's protection and about his provision and about his, his comfort and about his guidance and about his leading and that he rescues. But we also read about a God that is constantly prodding his people to step out in faith, to be courageous, constantly leading them into places to leave their comfort, to leave their homes, and to follow him, sometimes with nothing. Leave everything and follow me. God is consistent in both ways. We just want the one story. Even those words, God is our provider, he's our protector, he's our rescuer, he's our healer, all of those things imply, imply an ongoing need for those things in our lives. And so we're going to look at this today. If you would, turn to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at two verses here, and then we're going to spend most of our morning in numbers. So if you want to jump and mark that, you can do that. But first, Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. You can see it on the screen right there. 
This is Jesus at the end of his famed Sermon on the Mount. Okay, he concludes it with a bunch of warnings and invitations. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. See, the ancient world, Israel, okay, push pause for a moment. Commercial coming. Every year my wife and I get to lead Mariner's Church to Israel. If you have not been to Israel, you must, you must come with us at some point. Maybe it's this year. November 7 through 16, we are going. It will change your life. How many of you have been through Rooted? Okay, it's like Rooted in six days. It's that profound. You understand God's word. You get to see him. You stood where Jesus stood. You walked where he walked. You look at passages like this, and he speaks to you in that space, and it changes your life today and forever. Commercial over. Jesus, in this invitation, he's standing not far, right, from Jerusalem. People would have understand this. They have walls and cities and gates, and he's giving them a metaphor that they understand. And he's talking about wide gates. And they had these wide gates. Even today, they've converted them in the city of Israel. If you go, you will see them. They have like two-lane roads going through them. I mean, you could have fit tons of people and masses of, you know, cattle and whatever else. They would have gone through there. But then right next to them, there's these little gates. All, maybe as wide, some of them just as like this chair. And it, basically, he's saying that the audience clearly would have understood what he's trying to say. He's saying, if you're serious about following me, if you're serious about choosing me to follow, you have to break off from this wide road, this wide gate that really easily just consumes people and lets them flow on through. You have to intentionally break off and choose a different path. And not only do you have to choose this, but he says this is the, this is the way to life, the abundant life, and it's narrow. And because of that, he's implying some things. Number one, not many find it. They may seem a little crazy, these people that walk through the narrow gate. And the very definition of the word narrow that Jesus uses at this point is to press, as in grapes, like a wine press. So not only is it a narrow space, you will get pressed and squeezed and even wrung out. Jesus is saying something profound in what it means to choose to follow him, even in that two verses. And I don't think we really want to walk through something that difficult. There must be something on the other side of that gate that is profound. This grand epic tale that he writes for us, this life of adventure. There must be something to following Jesus. God's son, the creator of everything. But we want it to be easy. We want it to come with a sense of safety and security, not the promise of being pressed and having to squeeze through narrow gates. We want it to be back to kid pictures. We want it to be like my kids played soccer, right? We played some soccer growing up. We have kids who played soccer. What do parents do at the end of soccer games? Woohoo! You line up, you make a tunnel. A little narrow passageway. We're clapping. Yeah, kids run through. Celebration. This is easy. Here, have a granola bar and an orange. In the juice box, you did it. Really? That's not the Christian life. That's not following Jesus. And this invitation by Jesus is just, it's consistent. It's a continuation of what God 
has been painting pictures of for us in his word for thousands of years prior to this. Turn to Numbers, chapter 13. Here's what we know. Israel had been in captivity in Egypt for over 400 years. God shows up on the scene through Moses, delivers them out of captivity. Okay? They have gone through some of the most amazing things, this daring rescue in Egypt. They're making their way through the desert. God's providing. They stop at Mount Sinai for some official business and commandments and things. Then they walk into Canaan, the land promised by God. They're, they're supposed to go and take this land, and they're ready. And in Numbers 13, we see this. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. These are their names. Do you have their names? Look at this. From the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, son of Zakur. From the tribe of Simeon, that guy, son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, son of that guy. From the tribe of Issachar, Igal, son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim. And there's lots of these guys. Okay? Verse 16, these are the men, the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. And Moses gave Hosea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. So this isn't that complicated. They've been rescued right, by God, sent to this place. They are standing on the precipice of this life of adventure, the promised land, something beautiful and amazing that God has promised them. Not that complicated. Go check this out. Tell us what you see. And there's an interesting commentary real quick, right, about one of these people, Hosea, son of Nun. His name actually means salvation or rescue. And his name gets changed to God is our salvation, Yahweh is our rescue. He changed his name to Joshua, which is the same name of Jesus in the first century. Just a clue about the awesomeness, right? So God, in a way, is still saying, I'm with you. Moses, change his name. So let's see what happens. Verse 17, when Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up to the Negev Valley and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak Few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees? Do your best. Bring back some of the fruit. For it was the season for the first ripening of the grapes. So everything's coming into season. It's supposed to be beautiful. And he's asking all the questions, great leaders. What? Hey, go check this out. Come back with some of these things. Just give us a report of the demographics and all that stuff. So the next six verses, we see that they do this. And then in verse 27, they come back. And they give Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us. And it does flow with milk and honey. Here's the fruit. They bring back some fruit. But the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Giants living in that space. They come back. They give their account. The first thing we say that's interesting is it says, We went into the land that you sent us. So all of a sudden, it's not the, we went into the land God's promised. We went into the land that Abraham and Isaac and generations before us, this is what God said he's going to do. All of a sudden, it's not us. It's not we. It's you. And we think you might have set us up. Because they start saying, yes, it has all these amazing things, but it looks really hard. It looks really scary. It doesn't look certain. 
Moses, it doesn't even look safe. They start saying these things, and the us and the we becomes you. Parents, we do this really well. When our kids are the A students, when they're behaving well, when they're doing great in sports, it's, oh, our kids. <laughs> Boy, look at our son. Boy, isn't he great? <laughs> they get a little sideways. Honey, get your son. Come and get him. It's like just this disassociation. And that's what they start doing with Moses. They give their reluctant account. Everything's great until this. And it's no longer this adventurous plan that God has them on because there's no guarantees of safety. The prevailing belief all of a sudden among the fearful is that God has abandoned us or he will or he's setting us up. And they allow their fear to shape their belief and trust into a sense of lack of hope and abandonment. And certainly God can't be there. But look what happens in verse 30. Caleb silences the people before Moses and he says, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. The voice of reason. The man who keeps God's promises in view. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. They don't say they're stronger than God is. They're stronger than we are. They spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. God is inviting them into this illogical space that requires faith and trust and courage and adventure. And it requires God. And they say, we can't do it. We don't want that. These people are huge. They're stronger than us. We don't have the assurances of safety. It's like we're going to get pressed through this narrow gate. Verse 14, chapter 14, verse 1. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said, If only we died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to just go back to Egypt? We should choose a leader and go back. The fear just continues to spiral in their lives. They completely lose sight of who God is, of what he had done. Not just the promises of hope, but the fact he'd already carried them through some amazing things. They were witnesses. They had seen. They had been a part of. But that little fear started spiraling and consuming them to where they didn't even see that anymore. They started telling everybody around him, no, we're going to be devoured. We can't go that way. We surely can't do this. And they start settling for a smaller life and for a prison of what's known and seen instead of what could be on the other side of that little gate. They start settling, even saying, let's go back. Do you understand what they're saying here? Let's go back to slavery. Let's go back to captivity. Let's go back to isolation. Let's go back to being owned by other people. Because surely that must be better than the promises God's already given and holding out in front of us in this invitation to a life of adventure. Fear overwhelms, and it causes us to lose perspective 
and sight, and we start to spiral. And I think we can frame this whole conversation in the context of idol worship. Because following Jesus is not about having no fear or a lack of fear. Fear exists. Moses, Caleb, David, Joseph, you, me, we're afraid. That's not the problem. That's not sin. That is not the problem. The problem, bless you, the problem is when that starts to consume us and it becomes the idol. Because what is the idol of our life? It's the thing we worship. It's the thing that leads us. It's the thing that guides us. It's what directs us. It what's us it's, it's what controls us and allows us to make our choices in life. And fear had become the idol of these people instead of God. They were worshiping fear. And it started to consume the culture around them. And it's not much different for us today, right? We live in a culture that subtly and sometimes not so subtly is centered around fear. Because everything around us is trying to convince us that we have to look a certain way. We have to act a certain way. We need to go to the right schools. We need to become these things in order to make it in life or to have the right spouse or friends or jobs or cars. All of that. I mean, some of the most successful advertising campaigns in history have been built around fear. Okay, I'm a little older than you guys, but there was this, there was this thing. You're chuckling. <laughs> guys. Uh, there was this thing when I was a kid growing up called Ring Around the Collar. All right, and they'd show people doing laundry or guys in business suits walking into meetings, and all of a sudden, like all these devil children start screaming in his head, ring around the collar, ring around the collar. And, like, you know, he goes home and he's just devastated. You know, and his wife has to pour whisk, you know, around, ring around the collar, and then I'm happy and successful the next day, and I get the deals, and things are awesome. They created a culture, like a social, you know, faux pas out of ring around the collar. Allstate right now, one of the genius ones, I don't know if you guys have seen this, there's this campaign they have with a guy called Mayhem. Has anybody seen this guy? Guy in a suit, you know what I mean, but kind of disheveled and whatever, and he just kind of talks to you like this, and what, you know, and he, you know, he's falling off of cars, and he's everywhere, and he's causing car crashes, and things, you know, and what he's making us believe is that tragedy is right around the corner, and if you don't have Allstate, Mayhem could get you. They're trying to scare you into a space, thinking that that is going to provide the protection and the safety and the comfort that you need to guard against whatever tragedy could exist right around the corner or even through the narrow gate. Head and shoulders, right? We all know them here in the States as the most amazing shampoo that, you know, eliminates dandruff, right? Those nasty little flakes that we get on our black shirts that we wear all the time and sweaters and suits. So here's the deal. Head and shoulders is going to China. But the problem is, Chinese don't care about dandruff. They don't. So God bless them. They actually create a problem with dandruff in China. And they start running an ad campaign that's like, ooh, you have dandruff. Ah, ah people, I, 
Like it's contagious or something. Like it's, you know, you're going to die from dandruff. You know, like it's this horrible disease, the leprosy of the modern day. They actually create a culture of fear to sell a product in China, and it works. Guys, I'm telling you, it's everywhere. In subtle ways and in obvious ways. But it's so drenched and so ingrained in us that it just becomes a part of our story, and we don't even think about it anymore. We understand it, and Satan likes to twist it until it becomes our friend. And once fear becomes our friend and something we just live with, and like, that's okay to have fear, and that's certain degrees of it, that's cool, it's, it's not really affecting me. What he does is he starts to supercharge that fear, and he starts to twist it. And sooner or later, it starts to guide and shape our decisions and our choices instead of the God that we said yes to follow. Look what the Bible says about surrendering our story to the idol of fear. Revelation 21, verses 6 through 8. He said to me, Jesus, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will enter all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic, the idolaters, and liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And this is the second death. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the idolaters. When fear starts to consume us and we follow it as opposed to the courageous, loving God of the universe, look what happens. We get included in this list of people, the cowardly, the unbelieving. Are you surprised to find cowardly on the same list as murderers? Cowardly? Murderer. This is Jesus. This isn't Kyle. And it's not about an elimination or a lack of. It's about what is on the throne of your life. Are you worshiping Jesus or are you worshiping fear? What's shaping your choices and decisions? Because we are in danger of operating just like the Israelites. At least in our attitude towards fear. We've looked, they've had this history with God. They've followed pillars of fire. He's provided He parted a sea so that they could walk through, not on damp ground, on dry ground. So there's lots of miracles rolled into just that one. It's not that this giant sea parted. It's then it's dry. It's not like the ocean after the tide goes out and it's still a little wet and you collect crabs and stuff. Like, it's dry. He'd rescued. He provided. They aren't taking their cues from that God anymore. They're settling for a smaller story that the little God, the little idol of fear in their life has convinced them is one of safety and one of security. So we see in 14, verse 7, Caleb rebukes them again. He says, the land we, verse 6, Joshua said to Nun, Caleb said to Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. They said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. 
Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid. And this is the decision moment. This is the point they reach. Is it going to be about prudence? Is it going to be about things that we start shaping and fear starts shaping in our lives called responsibility? Well, it's being responsible. It's not fearful. I'm being responsible. I'm being wise. It's, it's what, you know, I've asked lots of people, and what lots of people will do is this. Remember that wide gate? Remember that narrow gate? Sometimes, maybe more oftentimes than not, it's not about the lots of people. And fear starts to masquerade. And it's a decision to choose to be courageous in the face of fear. And what is it for you? Let's just pause for a moment. What is God inviting you into? This little narrow gate. What does that look like in your life? What does it look like to push through the fear and choose that, even knowing that it's going to be pressing, but the story to be written on the other side of it is spectacular? Knowing that God has already written the good works for you just to walk into. And he doesn't say that without any sort of danger or without any sort of effort or without any sort of hardship. But that's a promise. You see, Christians are invited to live in a way that is generally regarded as incredibly absurd. If we're living effectively as followers of Jesus in the world, people should look at us and just scowl sometimes and go, I'm so compelled and attracted by you, but I have no idea what to make of you. Guys, look at this room. What would happen in our community, in your schools, in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, if you guys walked through those narrow spaces and people started going, what's happening to you? You seem a little different. You don't seem to be going with the flow. You seem, what's, what does that look like? You see, as followers of Jesus, we're invited to step out and into this narrow space, to forgive when justice and or revenge seems absolutely, absolutely appropriate. To be generous, to give generously, even in a crazy economy where everybody would say, wow, that's, I don't think that's responsible. No, it's not. No, it's not. But my God's not about responsibility. He's about courage. He's about obedience, and he's about showing himself to be glorious in this world. And he's about me becoming who I'm called to be in that space. To forgive, to give generously. To fight for your marriage. When it would be much easier just to walk away, start over. What would it look like if the divorce rate in the church was dramatically different than the divorce rate out of the church. Don't you think the world would stop and cock their heads and go, there must be something compelling about this Jesus and following him 
to fight for your marriage, to seek out the loners, to seek out people that are different than you, not just even tolerate them, but to actually go to them, to love them, to come alongside them in hopes of restoring them, just like the rest of this world, back to what God originally designed it to be. To live a life of abstinence and following what God has called us to sexually as opposed to choosing to compromise and live together, test things out. Isn't that, wouldn't that be the wise thing? Wouldn't that be smart? Things that make the world go, huh? There's something spectacular. In this story, what happens next is we see that God, as a loving father, does what loving fathers do. He disciplines his kids. He does not. He does not send them away. He does not abandon them. He does not leave them alone. He disciplines them. He disciplines them with the desire to help return them to the adventure, to what they're called to live. And so part of that discipline is to wander in the desert for 40 years so that this generation that chose fear as their idol as opposed to God to worship will pass away and they'll come in. And the Israelites, it's interesting, they do sort of what all kids do when you finally discipline them to shape their character. They agree to what was originally commanded. Okay, so I get to live with my kids. My youngest is a daughter named Cozy and my middle son, Tate. And they have one of the most spectacular relationships and they're fantastic, but they're kids. And so they love to do battle on things too. One of the things kids love to do is to imitate each other, right? They'll just say the same words, say the same words. Stop it, stop it. Mom, mom, it's like, what? How can this be fun or even attractive? But it's what they do. So just um, two days ago, Cozy's doing this to Tate. So Tate, Tate, Dad, ah, Cozy, whatever. And I said, okay, Cozy, sweetheart, do you know you're not supposed to do this? Yeah. Okay. If you do this one more time, you will have to get a timeout and go to your room. Okay, Dad. We know what happens, right? I mean, it's not 60 seconds. Dad, you know, Tate's yelling. Cozy, I know, I know, okay, okay, Dad, okay, I'm just, I'm so sorry, I'm just kidding, you don't have to put me in timeout, I'll, I'll do it, I'll stop. Well, not, it's too late. Because then it's my character that's at stake. Do you understand that? Cozy, I'm so sorry, but for you to become who you're called to be, you have to have a timeout now. You have to go to your room. The Israelites, that's what they were saying. Okay, we get it. We don't really have to do this. We know we weren't supposed to. We're sorry. We won't do it again. We don't really need this 40-year wandering in the desert thing. Look at verse 39. When Moses reports this to the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Early the next morning, they set out for the highest point in the hill country, saying, Okay, now we're ready to go up to the land the Lord has promised. Surely we have sinned. Okay, so they're in now. But Moses said, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up because the Lord is not with you. 
You will be defeated by your enemies. The Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there. Because you've turned away from the Lord, he won't be with you and you will fall by the sword. Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up to the highest point in the hill country, though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant moved from the camp. Then the Amalekites and Canaanites who lived in that country came down and attacked them and gave them a beat down all the way to Hormah, which is a long way away. There is a literal kingdom, a promised land that was right in front of them. And they were under the impression, even after they've been corrected by Moses, that the land they've been given by God is worse off if God is actually there, and they are worse off if God is guiding and leading. So they're saying, this is where God is. I want you to go into this. It doesn't look safe. It doesn't look secure. But I am there, and I've promised this to you, and now is the time, and now is the moment. Moses is ready. The ark, which represents the presence of God, let's go. Fear shrinks them. They settle for a small story. Twice, Caleb comes back. Joshua, come on, guys, we can do this. This is what God is saying. It's our story. Twice, they shrink back. God speaks to Moses and says, my character is at stake. I will not abandon you. I love you. You are my children but you have to have a consequence. You have to wander for 40 years. Oh, gosh, we're so sorry. Don't do that, please. Let's go. Moses is saying, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't understand. God, God's leading you differently now. He's not there. He's with you here. This is where we are, and he's going to be with us, even in this 40 years of wandering. God provided every day everything they needed, everything they needed walking through that narrow gate. 40 years wandering, God still showed up. But they say, no, we can do this. Once again, they're just, it's better on our own. We could do this on our strength. We're going to leave our leader. We're going to leave what God's promised. We're going to leave his presence and go out on our own. Because that seems like the thing to do now. They wanted the land. They just didn't want God. It's not courage, it's recklessness. And we do the same thing in our lives. There's two guys in this story, right, that see everything that God promised. And there's a whole community of people that sees giants. Conventional wisdom, the wide gate. Everything says we'd rather go back to what we know than to risk. And this is us. There's a line from a a little-known U2 song, which says, I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. God forbid anybody in this community says that about this church and us as followers of Jesus. Because we're faced with the same decisions every moment and every day. Adventurous faith means living in a way that seems far beyond anything, people around us, certainly the world and culture, it will not make sense. And God calls us to these courageous lives where we will never have all the answers spelled out before we start walking through it and start walking into it. And even then, we don't get all the answers. 
Just this past week, uh, our staff lost a really, really close friend. She was our producer on our Irvine campus, and she'd been battling cancer for the last three years. And as I've walked with her, as I've walked alongside her family, it's part of what God has done in preparing me for this message. Because here's one thing I know. There was lots of points in the journey where settling and where fear could have consumed them. And they could have written a different story. But every step of the way, Kim and her husband Chris and their son chose to cling to this hope and the promises. And they would look back and say, no, look what God did. Look who he is. And in the face of fear, they would just stare it down and keep being pressed as they walked this road. And ultimately, she passed away Thursday morning. And even in that, as I went to meet with the family and with them, we're sitting in this circle just weeping with each other. And you know what we're saying? Satan didn't win. He didn't win. <laughs> he didn't win. Who knew that this life adventure God had called her to would only last about 45 years in this space? But there's a life of adventure <laughs> that she's living now that would have been far different if she were still here. And the life of adventure now that we are called to as her close family and friends and as family and her husband and her son walk is pressing. And every day the world will want to tell them to make it easier. That God's not real. That you don't have to walk through the narrow door and be pressed. Walk through the wide door. Medicate your pain. Find different ways to walk through this. And every day they live a life of adventure and courage and they say, no. We follow Jesus. We follow Jesus. You see, Jesus is inviting every single one of us into this adventure. In Mark, he shows up on the scene. And he says, the kingdom is here. He announces the arrival of the kingdom. He shows us how to pray. And he says, pray this way. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Don't pray safe, small prayers about protect me. Give me safety, God. Lord, it's all about me. There's nothing in there about hedges of protection and survival. This world is not about survival. This world is about adventure and about courageously following Jesus and about ushering in kindness and love and grace and generosity that causes the world to stop and say there's something different about this church. That's what we're invited into. And it's not on our strength. It's because Jesus did it all. He did it all. 2 Corinthians 5, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Therefore, because of all Jesus did, when we say yes to following Jesus, he anoints us and calls us as his ambassadors. He says, you represent me in this world. 
You go and become who I've called you to be and redeem and restore everything I've created back to the way I originally designed it. He doesn't say play it safe. He doesn't say hide out. He doesn't say say yes and guarantee eternity and then just live out this life as safely as you can. Live dangerously. Live courageously. What if faith determined the boundaries of our life instead of fear? What would that look like in your life today? If you would, just close your eyes for a second. In a moment, I'm going to pray for us and and, uh, we're going to sing because we need to sing truth into our souls. It's what we carry with us. But before we do that, I believe God is speaking. He always is speaking to us as his kids. And what is he saying to you this morning? Not to your spouse not to your friend, not to your son or daughter. What is he saying to you? What's he inviting you into? It should be big enough to require God. Therefore, it should feel a little scary and absurd. Maybe something most people would call crazy. Maybe it's forgiveness or generosity or reconciliation or purity. I'm going to ask you to do something courageous. And if there's something specific, God is inviting you to turn loose of where fear has caused you to settle in your life. I'm going to invite you just to stand so I can pray for you wherever you're at. It's the first step of courage right there. Here's the deal. We don't do this journey alone. We do it because God wrote it, because Jesus invited it, and because the Holy Spirit empowers it. And we do it with each other. And so I'm going to ask you, if you would, you don't have to say anything, but if you're close to one of these people that has stood for prayer, would you just stand up and move close to them? just put a hand on their shoulder doesn't matter if you know them or not we're all together in this journey we just don't want anybody to be alone we get to represent the presence of the Holy Spirit as we walk with one another this morning And for those of you seated just extend a hand of blessing and let's pray for these God thank you for your word thank you for your story for your power. God, thank you 
for your grace and your love and your compassion. Thank you for your voice in the context of the Holy Spirit that speaks and leads and guides and brings comfort and peace. And God, for those that have stood this morning acknowledging that they will not bow to the little idol of fear anymore in their lives, but they only want to bow to you, God, we pray that you would remove that from their life, that you would give them a peace and a strength that only comes from you. And God, as a community, we pray, not just for these, but for all of us, that we would walk out these doors this morning and that our families and our schools and our workplaces and our communities would look and feel different because you are there in and through us. God, this morning, speak to all of us as we continue to listen and to respond to your powerful, (laughs) dangerous voice in our lives. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand?